Uh, but Democrats have been questioning uh, questioning the attorney general's what's the word uh, ruling report like bias decision kind of, uh, interpretation yeah interpretation yeah. I like that one good job Ben <laughs> team effort. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. We got the whole crew today. Uh, joining us today, Luke Boggs. Hello, I am here. Megan Payne is also here. Hey, how's it going? And Ben Stout is back with us this week. Uh, quick question for you, Kyle. What do you call a man with a rubber toe? Oh, God. Oh, no. Uh, it's a Roberto. Joke. Roberto. Gross. Ugh. <laughs> So, on this week's show... <laughs> loose show today. It's going to be a loose show today, guys. Uh, we... there, there's been very little preparation and a lot of ad-libbing going on, and apparently dad jokes. Don't admit to that. Yeah, oh, you should cut that. They're going to know. <laughs> they're okay, gonna well, know. well, then leave that in, then. Oh, so, shit. on today's podcast, we are going to check in on the latest on House Bill 481. This is a bill that would ban abortion at six weeks in the state of Georgia and set up a court case uh, where uh, anti-abortion advocates hope that it will succeed in uh, toppling the existing law on abortion access in this country. Um, this is a bill that has been contested uh, ferociously by uh, by pro-choice advocates, and um, we are nearing the final stages for this bill. We are recording on Wednesday night, and uh, we think that this bill is going to come up for a vote in the House, its final vote in the House on Thursday at some point. Um, so we are recording before the final vote. You may hear this after the final vote, uh, but we're going to check you guys in on where that bill is at. Then uh, there's been a lot of Atlanta to Washington and Washington to Atlanta going on uh, the last uh, week or so. Uh, Stacey Abrams has been floated as a potential vice presidential candidate for Joe Biden. If Joe Biden was to choose to jump into the presidential race, uh, the current vice president, Mike Pence, was here in Atlanta uh, to criticize uh, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms over her uh, limits on the the city of Atlanta's cooperation with ICE. And then another 2020 contender, Kamala Harris, senator from California, she was here in town doing some events. Um, the interesting thing about her visit, she proposed a, a large pay increase for teachers that is basically right in line with what Republican Governor Brian Kemp has just secured today in the final version of the state budget. Um, so we have bipartisan support for teacher raises, which is a pretty fun thing. Um, and then we'll wrap up the show with a discussion of the release of the summary of the Mueller report. We will give Ben an opportunity to take a victory lap, and then we will discuss whether or not that victory lap is premature uh, for the president's defenders. Um, but let's start with this check-in on the uh, abortion ban bill. Um, so this bill is about to get to its final vote. And uh, one of the interesting pieces of news today was uh, comments that were recorded from the bill's primary sponsor, Representative Ed Setzler from Ackworth. Um, he was telling a group of Cherokee County Republicans uh, that uh, pro-life forces needed to get out and back up this bill 
Um, and he uh, described a little bit of the resistance to this bill from pro-choice advocates. Let's listen to a little bit of that. We were debating this bill. I can tell you, Speaker Austin called some of his lieutenants up and said, guys, I know you don't like this bill. I need you with us. The governor campaigned on this. We're going to do this. And we got passed by two votes. I can tell you the pro-works were crawling all over our members. They send out a page note. They walk out to talk. They were all over our members, spending as much influence as they could possibly expend on our pro-life people. Because if they can peel off two or three, they think they got they think they got us beat. So we need to show up on Thursday, and we need to reach out to our representatives and senators. And there's a lot of folks who voted yes who kind of have a bellyache about it. They don't really like voting yes. They don't want to have to go stand behind us and campaign on this. I can tell you the other side is. Is, is coming in, but we're getting emails with our face on it, with a stamp across our face saying, you're going down in 2020. I mean, the aggressiveness of the other side, they're in our face. I mean, Sally Harrell, who's a, who's a, who's a Democrat senator, said, we're coming for your seats. Women are coming after you guys. Oh, oh, yeah. They're calling yeah, people out by name. They they're they're going to take members down. And I can tell you, there are some terrified Republicans out there. So we need to strengthen the people who voted yes. We need to bring over a couple of folks who took a walk and didn't vote. And we need to prepare to fight this till this fight is done. Because I can tell you guys, the other side ain't given up. This bill is going to kick off probably one of the most brutal fights in Georgia politics that we have seen, at least in my lifetime. Um, Megan, what are your thoughts as this bill gets to its final stages? I am highly disappointed in the state of Georgia right now. Um, obviously this is not the entire state. It's our representatives and our senators that have let this bill get this far. Um, despite a lot of, uh, a lot of Georgians expressing that they do not support this bill. I have a lot of concerns about it. I think I've, you know, kind of already laid those out ad nauseum, but this is just, this is not okay for Georgia women. This is not okay for Georgia's already deplorable maternal mortality rate. It's just it's it's going to hurt our state. Alyssa Milano is already calling for Hollywood to pull out of Georgia. It's it is potentially a massive business impact as well as a health impact. It's not okay. Ben, as we heard in that audio from Representative Setzler, there are some Republicans who he described as having a bit of a bellyache over this vote, the second vote that the House will have to take to approve this bill, and the Georgia Right to Life, a conservative pro life group. They actually came out opposing the bill because they think that the exceptions in the bill are they're not they're not strict enough and so they've encouraged representatives to vote against this bill but at this point the house has already taken a vote the senate's taken a vote there's a lot of republican members on the record in support of this bill is there a chance that this bill will not receive final passage in the house tomorrow i don't see that there's a a chance of that. And that's just because the the die have been cast, if you will, the people who are going to support it have already voted for it, be pretty hard for them to back on that or walk again. And even then there are additional people who walked last time. And now that it's passed the Senate, I think you could see even more votes come over. Uh, I could, I think anywhere from three to four additional votes. Um, Georgia Right to Life, I'm intimately acquainted with that, uh, with that organization. And um, uh, in my conservative uh, perspective, their heart is in the right place, um, but they are just uh, very bad at understanding how how politics works, and, um, and and just aren't to be taken seriously at this point. And to be and to be honest, that their effect at the Capitol is um, is zilch. 
Luke, there was one Democrat that vo- one Democrat in the House that voted for this bill the first time. Mac Jackson from Sandersville. From the comments from Representative Setzler, this vote still really could come down to the wire, even if uh, Republicans feel they have the votes. Do you think that there's any pressure right now on that Democrat to not potentially be the final vote that would push this uh, to the governor's desk? I, I'm sure there is, and I would uh, advise uh, him to change his vote or, uh, you know, f- find himself in the bathroom next time that comes up. Uh, I just want to throw out so, uh, Representative Jackson as a minister. Um, I think that that, that is, uh, I'm not necessarily saying that if you're a minister, you have to vote one way or another on this bill. I'm just saying that I think that that does play a role into this. And additionally, and of course, I'm saying this now, and I want him to vote for it. And so it's easy to say this in my position now. But universally, even whenever it's somebody who's standing, uh, uh, you know, a Republican who's siding with Democrats or something like that, I do generally have a respect for somebody who will stand on principle. And so I hope I will say that again whenever it's somebody who's not doing it the way I want them to. In this case, Representative Jackson is. But when somebody stands on principle against their party. The problem with him standing on principle, though, is that he's not voting to, to give voice to the base that elected him, which is the entire reason he is a representative. That's the problem that I have with it. So he can stand on principle all day long, but is he representing the people that elected him? I think probably not. You know, that, that's something that probably he would know best. I know he represents rural Georgia, and uh, and it's much more um, it's, it's different than than an urban community. The, the rural Georgia that he represents it's um, it's rural Georgia. It's it's most it's mostly minority, but rural, and so it's a little bit different. And I think that it may more closely represent it than. In a, than an urban representative would. Well, I think the other thing is that, I mean, the, the issues here are certainly important, but it, I think if he can be branded as the last vote, a a Democrat that pushed this Republican-pushed measure uh, that the rest of the party so vociferously opposes, if he's the one to push that across the finish line, I think he's toast in a primary. So, I mean, to the extent that he cares about his own political future, he, I, this, to me, will be a, a virtually indefensible vote if he is the final vote in favor. So the one thing that I'm left here is there's been a lot of discussion about the lack of the voice from the business community on this issue. And then sort of late in the game here, some businesses have written out in opposition to this bill. But it, it seems to, like, not fully understand what the long-run economic impact of this bill would be, in my view. It's not that when Governor Kemp signs this bill that Home Depot and Hollywood and Coca-Cola are all going to go running for the hills. It's over time when Georgia, which a lot of our economic development strategy is all about bringing in corporate relocations, we're a magnet for business growth, and a magnet for small business development, and particularly for Governor Kemp, who has this Georgians First Committee that is dedicated to reducing regulations on small businesses to aid small business growth, that if the anti-abortion advocates get their way and they win in the Supreme Court, not only will abortion become illegal in Georgia, but it is likely to become illegal in most of our neighboring states. We're in a very conservative corner of the country. And over time corporate relocations, small business development, they're going to have a really significant reason to choose Virginia over Georgia, to choose Massachusetts over Georgia, to choose California over Georgia. 
because currently there are more women going to and graduating from college than there are men. And in the long run, the workforce is going to start to tilt a little more female than male, particularly the high skill workforce that high value corporations need that they need access to. We've already seen corporate locations scuttled in Gwinnett County by their lack of access to transit because they weren't going to be a magnet for young high school people to come live there. And I think over the long run, you have the same issue with this bill. When, you know, if you're a graduate from a Georgia college, you can go, you know, we have excellent programs in Georgia, and they set you up to be able to leave and go anywhere you want. And if you are told from the perspective of a woman, if you are told that you are a second class citizen throughout the entirety of growing up and you are a high skilled person who graduates from college, I think you're buying a plane ticket out of the state the second you graduate. I cannot speak to all women, but I can speak to women who I can speak as a woman who grew up in Louisiana. Um, and that's part of why I left Louisiana. I felt like women were not treated well or equally and that's not to say that we were treated rudely or abused or anything like that. I don't want anyone to take it to that extreme. But there were not business opportunities for me there as a well-educated young professional. So I came to Atlanta knowing that, yes, Georgia's a red state, but Atlanta is very progressive. And now having Atlanta be affected by bills like this, it gives me pause. It makes me wonder how long I'm going to be able to stay here. Not that I'm like, timing like okay i'm gonna need to have an abortion or whatever that's not the issue but the issue is that if georgia really feels this way how else do they feel what else is going to affect my life down the line and so speaking as a woman that's already experienced some of this i've i've started thinking about what my five-year plan looks like and if it includes georgia yeah and i think i think that the more women that feel that way and that question their place in this state, regardless of whether they personally will be impacted by the policy, but it's sort of the broader message that it sends, it undoes a lot of the work that particularly conservatives have done creating a business-friendly environment. I think it undermines a lot of that work, and that's why I think it's a big unforced error for the state if they pass this bill. So just coming back for a second to my five-year plan, including Georgia, um, one of the things that I have thought about is maybe I stay because Georgia needs the help. And I think maybe one of the other things that this could cause, if we're just going to look at this for from a glimmer of hope for a second, is maybe a doubling down of women affecting politics and flipping the state. Not to say that this bill is a good reason for that. In fact, it's a really terrible one. But if there are women who are like me, maybe part of the five-year plan is, well, you know what? I don't like it but I want to stay here. So let's fix it. Well, and that speaks to what um, I think it was Senator Jen Jordan. I could be getting this quote wrong, but somebody, or it might've been Sally Harrell um, said from the well of the, from one of the, it was Jen Jordan. It was Jen Jordan said from the well of the Senate the other day that, uh, that we will, we will be coming back to restore women's rights after we come and take the Republican seats. I hear, I hear what y'all are saying. I think that we can all, as a collective group, admit that when it comes to being political prognosticators, <laughs> we're all pretty bad at it. It's hard to prognosticate politics well. Every time I try to do it, I fail miserably. I think my perspective of it is um, is that uh, for both men and women, whenever Roe v. Wade was passed and, and through this whole discussion, uh, science was, I mean, you know, 
uh, sonograms did not exist when Roe v. Wade was passed. Right, you could not see a child in the womb back then. And as science has uh, slowly progressed, uh, younger generations are more pro-life than older generations. That's just a statistical fact. And so I think that, um, and that's among men and women. And so I think that what you're seeing is a little bit of a representative of that. Now, I think Georgia is on the front edge of that. But I think universally across America, you're going to start to see more pro-life bills because they see the humanity and the, the humanness of that child in that womb. I, I understand the concern from a business perspective, but I also think that that's a two-way street. So uh, Christians uh, who believe that marriage was between a man and a woman at so many states, uh, you could have made that perspective about pushing forward for, for equal rights in marriage. But the point was that it's the right thing to do, regardless of how a individual group may see it. Um, and I think that that same argument can be made here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about all these people, people from Atlanta going to Washington, people from Washington coming to Atlanta. Uh, we are increasingly the center of national politics, along with our own state politics these days. Um, one story that was particularly interesting was a report uh, showing that advisors to former Vice President Joe Biden were tossing around the idea of having Stacey Abrams be announced as the vice presidential candidate uh, paired with Joe Biden at his announcement. Um, it does not seem, it, it seems more like Biden's advisors were talking about this amongst themselves. And then this was leaked to the media and not an active conversation that was going on between Biden's camp and Abrams camp, because Abrams was on the view today. And she said that uh, she if she was jumping into the presidential race, she was not going to be running for second place. Um, so she seemed to pour cold water on this idea. But I when I first initially saw this news, I kind of thought that this was an interesting way for Abrams to keep all of her options open. What was your reaction to uh, Luke, let's start with you. What was your reaction to this news? And um, how are you thinking about the decision that lays before Stacey Abrams right now? I would say you have to run for the office that you you want to run for and that, you know, Stacey Abrams should make her own decision, just generally speaking. Announcing your vice president this early is a bad idea for anyone. I think it's always been a desperation move, and I think if Biden did it, it would be a desperation move. This is very similar in my mind to what Ted Cruz did near the end of the Republican nomination last time around, where he uh, said that Carly Fiorina would be his VP pick. I, I just think it's a bad idea, because even if you think Stacey Abrams is a great legislator, a great campaigner, and would be a good, like, team member for joe biden like it's so early in the race that like traditionally speaking at least in my opinion the best vice presidents have been people who have like been on the trail and were running for president also and providing a different message and contrast and actually like got in fights with the nominee and then ended up uh you know being like a partner for them in a way or someone who had you know a just very different national experience than uh you know than than the presidential candidate in the sense that like you know bill clinton was from arkansas had only been a governor and uh al gore had ran for president before but was a senator and you know like dick cheney's experience compared to george w very different and i i just feel like you need the race to like figure out like what you need and I don't think Joe Biden, even as long as he's been in politics, knows exactly the VP that he needs right now. And so I think for Biden and for Abrams, it's like flirting with the idea. OK, but like I, I wouldn't do it. I agree with you that it's premature, but maybe not quite for the same reasons. I would say that as far as like a 
desperation thing. What you're calling back to with Fiorina is that Cruz was almost certainly about to lose the nomination, whereas now it's so far out, who's to say who's got a leg up at this point? Um, so maybe not quite desperation, but maybe definitely a little bit of prematurity, a little bit of um, just kind of feeling out the audience, I guess, might be another way to look at it. But I, I do definitely agree that it's odd timing, and I'm not sure I like it. I would say my I, my point is, is like if Joe Biden felt like he was in the position Hillary Clinton was in in 2016, where he's going to like roll to the nomination, like he would not be his advisors rather would not be flirting with this. And, and I think the other thing is too <clears throat> about Biden's run that I find very curious is in comparison to other presidential campaigns teams, his team is incredibly leaky because this is not the only like weird thing they have put out. They've also put out the idea that he might uh, only want, you know, run for one term and do a one term pledge. Like they seem to be throwing a lot at the wall and there seems to be a lot of like consternation with, his team's ranks i'm just reading into what i see because just compared to like the obama campaigns like they were very tight-lipped and i just you know and hillary's campaign too like you didn't hear these kinds of like oh maybe we'll do this like coming out and right. so I, I don't know well the other the other idea though is that they're feeling out like like i already said they're feeling out the audience they're trying to see how people are reacting to things because the only way you're going to know with some of these things is by you know kind of shot across the bow so there could be a more long game type of reason that they're doing this. But I I do agree with the, the fact that at least with the VP nomination, it, well, and really all of it, it is quite odd. On this side of the aisle over here, I've got to say a couple things. First of all, it's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off to quote dodgeball. Second of all, I would like to, uh, I would like to throw in there that we can all be thankful that the reason that we have the vice president coming down and doing fundraisers, and which we'll get into more in a second, and the reason that we've had uh, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris coming down is thanks to our governor, current governor, Brian Kemp, who helped create the SEC primary and brought Georgia in relevance so that we're not a part of the whole uh, Super Tuesday. But the fact that we have our own SEC primary, which really started putting Georgia on the map for uh, for the uh, the national election stage, which is why we're getting these people. So shout out to Brian Kemp for getting these people here. And uh, I, I would actually, I would actually, I, I'm curious. You think Pence was here because of the the primary? Because I feel like this is more candidates are spending more time in Georgia because they're it's like a it's flirting with being a swing state, and that I feel like you would be stupid as a national campaign this far out not having Georgia as a part of your map that you test the waters in and see if you're actually going to invest in or not. No, if you look back at the history of the presidential visits, it changed whenever we got the SEC primary and it changed for the primaries. So the primary for Georgia happens earlier than Big Tuesday now. And so as far as momentum and campaign dollars and all of that kind of stuff, that's why you have to come in here is to get. So it's not even about. the Oh, no, I agree with that. But like that doesn't explain. No, no, that Vice President Pence, well, he was down here for a fundraiser for Purdue. um, Do you think so? Ben, do you think that that impact is the same for Democrats and Republicans, or or is the super, is the SEC primary more meaningful in the Republican presidential primary? The SEC primary is certainly more meaningful in the presidential primary. But to uh, to Luke's point, as Georgia begins to turn purple, as they say, and people may see it's in play, I think that. Georgia is slowly becoming the indicator of can this a person appeal to, let's say, even not just the South, 
but even the the Rust Belt. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that, uh, and, and me personally, again, I'm on this side of the aisle. You're not going to get my vote. But for what it's worth, Joe Biden's story is compelling. I mean, what he went through with his wife dying and then kind of commuting with his two children and stuff like that, besides the creepiness of his one son dying and then his other son having an affair with his former son's wife and then divorcing and marrying his former son's wife. Dang, isn't that just biblical? <laughs> yeah, besides the weirdness of that, Joe Biden's story is just very compelling and an amazing story, the struggles that he's been through and what he's accomplished. So I think that he could appeal to the Rust Belt, and I think that Georgia could show that. Yeah. So just to take a second, for those who are newer to politics like me, the SEC primary does, in fact, have to do with SEC football. Um, it does not have yeah, to the, do... The idea was to get all the SEC states to basically have their primaries on the same day. That's right. why it's called that. Right. Which yeah. I just wanted to clarify that it is not to do with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which is something <laughs> yes. else we hear about the SEC a lot in politics. So for football fans out there like me, it, we are talking about football, sort of. Yes, we are. We're a sports podcast now. Um, <laughs> so what will Kirby Smart do? <laughs> Kirby for president. Let's talk a little bit about Pence's visit. Ben, Pence came uh, to an uh, an ICE facility here in the state, and he was joined. Uh, I know he was joined by some members of the congressional delegation. I can't remember if Governor Kemp was there or not. He was. Um, he was there. Um, but he used part of his time here to uh, be really critical of Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and her limiting cooperation between the city of Atlanta and uh, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, the ICE agency. Why do you think Pence brought that message to Atlanta? I don't know why he brought that message to Atlanta specifically. Obviously, Atlanta is kind of the capital of the South, if you will. And so it's a it's a big player. Um, but, uh, but I think the message in general is that we're a nation of laws and that whenever you try to use your authority as a city to circumvent, uh, federal law, that that's not appropriate. And I think the vice president coming in and kind of making that known in your city, it makes a big statement. Um, you know, obviously I think he was here for obviously multiple reasons. He went to a fundraiser in Buckhead for Senator Purdue. And I think that that may be a lot of why he was down here. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, in general, it wasn't just about Atlanta. It was about cities circumventing the law. You know what else makes a big statement? What's that? Killing traffic on 7585. <laughs> I saw the motorcade. I saw the ghostly empty highway. And then I was also on the train trying to get home ahead of it. And the train was really busy. So uh, thanks, Pence, for that. When Biden came to tech, it's the same thing. Let's be fair. I know, I know. But it is still annoying. It is still annoying. We can, we can universally agree. 285 shut down at 4 o'clock bipartisanly is annoying <laughs> not a good idea <laughs> and, and, we, and we can thank our national politicians for highlighting the need for more transit access in the atlanta region Woo, marta luke one issue speaking of immigration and, and part of the reason for pence's visit one issue that has not been a high profile issue in the state level this year has been immigration what do you make of uh that issue that seemed so prominent in uh kemp's primary campaign particularly um, what do you make about this silence on that issue during this legislative session? Honestly, Georgia kind of was in ahead of the game, I guess, as far as conservative politics went. In that, I remember us passing legislation very similar to what Arizona was being criticized for several years ago. So I feel like we're 
pretty aggressive on these issues already. Um, and I, you know, Ben probably knows better than I do, but I don't feel like there's a whole lot of ground that needs to be made up. And then, uh, the other element is agriculture is so important to the state of Georgia. It, I, I remember when we passed those Arizona style immigration laws, the Georgia farmers <laughs> freaked out because they were having a lot, uh, harder time getting workers. So I, I think on that front, um, while the rhetoric is there and our national, uh, del- you know, our congressional delegation is very much aligned with Trump on, on these issues. I think it's one of those things where, you know, talking about the difference between state action and federal action, you know, I think from what I can tell, the state's pretty happy where its laws are and they want to see change on the federal level. Uh, and, and that's what they're pushing for. Yeah, I mean, it was just something that was on people's minds. You have to campaign on it, right? I think that we are pretty happy with where Georgia stands insofar as immigration goes. I mean, Brian Kemp has been a little busy at this point to get in his truck and to go around and to round up the illegal aliens in his truck by himself. A little busy at this point uh, via campaign promise. Um, So I think that that conservatives are pretty happy on that. Uh, The wall is being built. What was that? The first billion dollars of money has been uh, uh, allocated. And so... um, and so I wouldn't be holding your breath for any more on the state level. Let's see one more little slice of D.C. that has uh, come to Atlanta uh, since we last California. recorded. Well, yeah, yeah. A uh, little bit of D.C., a little bit of California. California Senator Kamala Harris, who is running for president in 2020, she held a rally at Morehouse College. She did some other events in the Atlanta area. Um, the big takeaway from her event and then the policy release that she put out after her event was a plan to provide significant raises for teachers. Uh, These raises are in the ballpark of like $13,000 a year. It intends to raise teacher pay. It intends to use primarily federal funds uh, to raise teacher pay up to the level of other professions where you need a similar education level. Um, Megan, what are your thoughts on, on Kamala Harris early in this race? I'm mostly just keeping a cur- uh, an open mind about all of the current candidates. Um, I do like Harris. I like her message. And as previous listeners to this podcast know, I'm also a Warren fan. I'm also a Beto fan. I like Biden. So right now, I'm not making any decisions. I'm just listening to everything they have to say. And I have to say that there's there's not a lot that I'm hearing that is that that really leans to to negative. So it's going to be a tough primary for me. I'm going to be definitely listening in on the debates. Ben, one of the uh, principal accomplishments of Governor Kemp in this first term uh, actually got finalized today. The state budget was finalized. I mean, it includes a full $3,000 raise for teachers. Kamala Harris is proposing an even bigger raise for teachers, uh, drawing on federal money. Uh, so can so Ben, can Kamala count on your vote in 2020? Unfortunately, that's going to be a negative ghostwriter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to nobody's surprise. I think that what we have to understand here, right, is that there there are certain things for certain organizations to do, right? And it, and it's about what is appropriate. So is it appropriate for the state to provide financial raises for their teachers pay who they pay the teachers uh, in large part? Yes, that is appropriate. Would it be appropriate for a state to set up a military base in another country? No, that's the federal government's job. Would it be appropriate for the federal government to come down and provide individual salary raises for teachers? No, that's the state and the county's role. And and so, again, it's just the roles of government. That's not the federal government's job. 
That well, I I would I would disagree with that. Just in in the sense that like I agree with you for the most part. You know, the state should stay out of uh you know some state policy. Sorry, the the Fed should stay out of some state policy and vice versa. But on this one, like I think the federal government has a pretty clear interest in providing for a well educated workforce and you know higher weight you know conservatives love to talk about free market but they really hate it when people are like oh teachers should be paid more so you actually attract better people to do the very important job of teaching and you know one of the big problems that we face in america right now is not that there aren't enough jobs it's that uh the people who uh, need a job are not trained to do the jobs that are available and so investing more in teachers you get better teachers they create better students folks are able to do those jobs i think the federal government has a pretty clear interest in that i think what you would be more concerned about ben and don't let me put words in your mouth is these strings that might be you know be attached to a kamala harris administration's teacher raises i'd certainly be concerned about those strings but i don't have to get there no you just made an excellent argument for teacher pay raises and you know what sign me up brian kemp raised the pay for the teachers he just did but just because that something should be done does not be, it mean it should be done on a national level. And, uh, and just think about it. If you raise the salary $13,000 for somebody who lives in the inner, you know, in, in, uh, in New York, teaches in New York. Okay, good. That's like, you know, might cover rent for that month. I understand that's an exaggeration. If you barely, raise, it, barely, if you raise uh, salaries, $13,000 for a teacher living in South Dakota, you might be upping their pay by 40%. You know what I'm saying? Like, like yeah, taking no, national solutions to state issues is not an appropriate thing. That, is, that being said, though, making teachers in North Dakota be, you know, because here's, I mean, here's the thing. If you're a highly educated person, I doubt North Dakota is very high on your list to move to. Uh, I am sending this podcast to everybody in North Dakota and they will be severely offended. Yes, I'm sorry, uh, everyone in North Dakota. All five of you, I'm very sorry. I hope the rural broadband is good enough in North Dakota for them to get our podcast. That's right. Yeah, hopefully. So anyways, we just, I mean, I'm just talking about the appropriateness of, of the federal and the state, and that's kind of a nuanced thing. Um, and I see what you're saying, Luke, but I just would prefer that on the state and local level. Well, I have to close this segment out by giving a, a, a bit of a word of praise to both Governor Kemp and to Kamala Harris in these proposals. Uh, Governor Kemp was the only candidate in the 2018 governor's race to put a number on the raise that he was going to provide teachers. He campaigned on a $5,000 raise, and we got 60% of it in his first year. Uh, I hope and anticipate that uh, we will get the full 5,000 within his first term, preferably sooner rather than later. Um, I think the number is good for accountability purposes. It becomes really clear whether or not that Brian Kemp kept his promise. Kamala Harris's number, I believe it's an average. So, you know, not, you know, I don't think the North Dakota teachers are getting a $13,000 raise. Uh, and maybe the New York teachers are getting a bit of a higher raise given the difference in cost of living. Uh, but there are numbers there. They make it easy to hold them accountable for the uh, promises that they make. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, so Ditto. Apl applause to uh, Governor Kemp and applause to Governor Kemp for getting this done this session, for getting 60% of it. Um, I'm I'm not in the camp that he had to get all 5,000 done now. That's pretty significant for one year, but uh, I want to see all 5,000 of that pretty soon. All right, guys, it is Mueller time. So last Friday... 
<laughs> Ben's getting ben, ready. You're gonna you're gonna get so much less excited when Ben's I answer this question I, first. I, I wish uh, our listeners could see the look on Ben's face. He is beaming with joy. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Last Friday, the press reported that Special Counsel Robert Mueller had turned in, had concluded his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election and the potential role of the Trump campaign in that he had closed that investigation. He had turned in his report to Attorney General William Barr. uh, And over the weekend, uh, Barr issued a summary of that report. He issued that to Congress. That issue was delivered publicly um, and that summary uh, basically came to the conclusion that one, uh, there was not a definitive link between the Trump campaign and Russian efforts to influence the 2016 election. And there was a non-decision by Special Counsel Mueller on, we- on whether uh, Donald Trump obstructed justice within this process, but Uh, Subsequently, the attorney general reviewed the evidence from the Mueller report, and he concluded that the president did not obstruct justice in this investigation. Uh, This was seen as a big win, uh, particularly on the conservative side of the aisle. It was seen as a big win for President Trump. He described it, I believe, as a total exoneration. Uh, But Democrats have been questioning uh, the attorney general's interpretation of the evidence and whether or not he is being fully forthright about what is in the report. And interestingly, both sides are calling for a full release of the full report, um, hoping that the details inside will uh, bolster their side of this argument. Um, Luke, I believe you are teed up for something special on this, so I'm just going to tee it up for you. Yeah, so... Uh, I, I think I will have a unexpected thought on this, which is I think this outcome is not only the like best one for the country because yay, a candidate did not coordinate with Russia. I'm gen- I'm genuinely happy about that. And then too, I think this is the thing that actually gives us a better chance of being Donald Trump in 2020. Uh, the reason I say that is if you look at how similar candidates to Donald Trump around the world and in the United States have been defeated. It is not these magic bullets. It is the boring, boring policy work of going out there and talking about why their policies are hurting you. Uh, you know, Trump Trump's victory lap, uh, you know, for uh, with the Mueller, Mueller report was, you know, him deciding that his administration was going to try to, you know, uh, invalidate healthcare. Uh, and to quote the president himself, uh, he would say, I'm, I mean, a hundred percent. I understand healthcare now, especially very well. A lot of people don't understand it. We are going to be the Republicans, the party of great healthcare. Woo. And that, and it's, and that in itself sums up why I'm excited about this, because we can stop talking about the Mueller report and Democrats can now focus on issues that actually matter to the majority of Americans. Because while had collusion been real, that would have been very important very you know critical for us to go after i don't think it's an issue that many americans care about i think many members of many of his voters say they don't care because they believe that he was going to help them and make their lives better and so i think uh as far as the parties go ask the report to come out i think that's important because you know people have a right to know like what robert Mueller found uh they can question the obstruction of justice charge but as a you know not impeached President Bill Clinton, not impeached President Richard Nixon, uh, can tell you it's really hard to impeach a president. 
and I don't think there's enough there there to do that. And while some Democrats definitely went too far out on the ledge, uh, you know, with saying uh, they had evidence that they did not, this was all, pretty much every statement Democrats had made was, we're waiting for the Mueller report. So I think we, as Democrats, we have not done anything that has hurt us yet, but I think this is a inflection moment where we need to be very, very careful to not go all Benghazi on this and just accept Robert Mueller's finding, unless some other evidence that comes out, which I doubt it will, that, you know, Donald Trump did not collude with Russia. Sorry, that that's over. Uh, he may have obstructed justice, but, uh, you know, Robert Mueller being the professional that he is, did not think that was his job to say if he did or did not. And then finally, this does not mean that Donald Trump is not a criminal. This does not mean that uh, the report's not going to have a lot of other bad information in it. And I think Republicans are really going out on a limb here by saying this is the greatest day ever and total exonerated because that's pretty much not what the report said. And from the language that uh, Attorney General Barr quoted, and I give him credit for including this in his summary, seems like it might have been like a 50-50 for Mueller or a 40-60 for Mueller if it was uh, obstruction or not, and he did not think it was part of his role to make that decision. Uh, so I, I think, generally speaking, this is this is just a reminder that, you know, in the history of American politics, there has been... One president taking out, not via death or assassination, by like political means, and it's Richard Nixon. And ever since then, every single campaign, every every time a president gets elected, they have found the next Watergate that's going to make them resign, and it never happens. And so I think the less that Democrats think that way, and they just like remember, it's like, oh, we have to go out and knock on doors and get people to show up on a day in November and vote this guy out, the better we will do. Ben, important question for you, because we're a sports podcast now. Is this Donald Trump's 28 to 3 moment? No, it's not 28 to 3 because it's not a comeback. He was never behind. Uh, what, what it is, is in the, in the popular vote question mark, he's the president. He's not behind on this particular issue because you can't say he was behind on collusion when he never colluded. Uh, I appreciate, uh, Luke making the point of we are, we can all be thankful that our president did not collude with a foreign government to win the election. As Americans, we should all be able to be thankful for that. Amen. Next up, I have to, uh, I think that. Luke's perspective from a Democrat that now that they can try to not make this like you said a Benghazi and move on and take it as a, um, you know, okay, that's done. Let's talk about policy. Let's move on. I think that actually may be beneficial for Democrats. And I think that he is, he is on spot there. Whenever he says that Democrats did not, you know, really didn't go out and say too many crazy things about this. Now that's a little ridiculous, right? You've well, got well, what, I, what I meant by Schiff that. saying, uh, you know, Adam Schiff saying that, um, that there's obvious evidence out there of conclusion. You had uh, senators saying that it's very clear that Donald Trump Jr. had the intent to clear that there's I could go on for days on the so quotes out there the, of Democrats saying that there's clear collusion. The one thing I want to clarify on that is there is a tricky thing. I think you will admit that I'm right on this. I don't think anyone knows what the legal definition of collusion is. And that's one thing I really appreciated from this report in that it provided a definition. And, and so like one man's collusion 
might not be Robert Mueller, I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt collusion by this definition provided to me by the Justice Department. If you don't like, know what I, collusion is, then don't say somebody has colluded. Okay, like, are, are we, do we really want to go into the conversation about how often politicians say things they don't know? Because that's not a good fight to have. No, but I'm just saying, this is, this is, all right. I there, agree with you. Look, there's an I, article I that was put out a couple of weeks ago that said every time Democrats do- talk, I, it makes me want to vote Republican. For our longtime listeners, you may remember that I said a family of mem- a member of mine did not vote for the president and um, and uh, and is more likely to vote for the president this time around after not voting for the president last time. Um, and I think that, that part of that is the fact that, they, that um, they didn't believe that he was as conservative or governor's conservative as he said he would and then has. And um, but I think if, look, if anything, he's been dishonest on that point and that he campaigned as a less conservative person than he is. He has governed very conservative and we are all very happy about that. But one of the things that um, that has been so infuriating is the way that the Democrats have treated this president. Uh, I understand I'm not here trying to make a point that presidents in the past, whether it be uh, Republicans to Obama or Democrats to Bush or however it may be, have tr- always treated the president well. But I think that there has been a new level of contempt for this president. And it makes every time that they continue to push, oh, he colluded, he didn't. Oh, his son colluded, he didn't. Oh, and they make up these stories. And it's not just even about the president, whether it's them running out the stories about uh, Covington Catholic kids or, or whatever. The more that they go out on these stories and go out on these limbs, the less and less I even want to 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 go there, right? The less that it's like, I even want to consider not supporting this president. So all of that to say, um, the fact that the, the Democrats went so hard in on this story, right? And, and everybody said, and not everybody, so many said he, that there's clear evidence of collusion. And then there's wasn't, not only does it show that the president didn't collude, which we're all thankful for, but it also shows that the Democrats were not being trustworthy and forthright with the American people. Yeah. So, I mean, I hear what you're saying about, you know, people treating Trump supposedly very badly. I I have no words for how badly Obama was treated. So I disagree with the fact that you're saying that it's worse. But obviously, this isn't a pissing contest. This isn't what this isn't what this is about. The, The bottom line is that it doesn't matter at the end of the day how badly or well a president was treated. What matters at the end of the day is the president needs to govern appropriately and needs to have gotten his position and maintain his position through legal means. Megan, what do you think about the sort of sea change here on impeachment? I mean, it sounds like, you know, Speaker Pelosi had poured cold water on impeachment before the Mueller report came out. She put a pin in it and said that the thing that we should be looking for is what is in the Mueller report based on the summary, unless the summary is not reflective of what's actually in the report, this does seem to really put a stop to the impeachment effort. Um, At least, you know, given the timeline of it, because, you know, something else would have to develop that would warrant impeachment, and that's going to take time. And then we're really not that far from the 2020 cycle. What do you think about that option being taken off the table by four Democrats? So I was always kind of on board with Pelosi um, with her originally saying that, or I I don't know the exact words that she used because I never really read a quote on that, but I knew that her big thing was that she didn't really want to push for impeachment. And I think it goes back to what Luke was saying earlier, that impeachment and having a 
a silver bullet is not how you typically get rid of a president. In fact, we haven't actually managed to complete or to complete impeachment processes against one, unless I'm mistaken. Yeah. So like, yeah, it's, it's, you know, for those of us who enjoy maybe like watching dramas, it's really interesting and entertaining and you wonder what's coming next and it makes great stories and great news. But at the end of the day, we need to focus on what's actually going to flip or, you know, get this seat away from President Trump. And the way to do it is not impeachment, historically speaking. And Megan, both you and Luke were at the Young Democrats conference a few weeks ago, just talking to young Democratic people who are heavily engaged in this. Is is impeachment something that comes up very often or... It really doesn't, at least not in my friend circle, not in the circle that um, I I really talk to a lot. Most of Kyle, the young- I was trying to not get impeached at that convention. <laughs> <laughs> no one was talking about impeaching you, Luke. It's fine. Well, then apparently there wasn't enough talk about impeachment. Oh, well, listen, I think that the question on impeachment of Luke from Young Democrats is still yet to be determined. Well, I, I'm not. He's not I'm the not president, president anymore. anymore. Well, yeah, regardless, yeah. I'd like to put forward a two-year investigation, spend between 25 and $40 million on it, and then we'll run through a finding. Well, I mean, okay, like, I think we can all agree that investigating this question was important. Because, I mean, here's, I mean, here's the thing, like, Robert Mueller had two tasks. One, figure out what Russia did, and two, figure out if Trump had anything to do with it. And I think, like, everyone is behind number one being important and... That was real since he because he indicted like two, three dozen Russians over it. Uh, so like that's important. And then the other thing is too, people committed crimes. They weren't the crimes that we expected to see them do, but like Paul Manafort was doing a lot of crime. The man like was eleven doing years a, ago. Go. Crime is crime. Who I know, cares but I'm just saying it it's not in conjunction with the campaign. That's all I'm saying. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I wasn't. I wasn't even suggesting that it was. Like I'm just saying that like. Like, this investigation was worth something. It came up with something. People got arrested that were doing things they weren't supposed to do. And, again, from what I imagine, because we have not seen the full report, there's going to be some questionable things because the things that we know publicly are questionable in the sense that, like, the Don Jr. exchange is not one that, like, makes me feel good about my country and my people in it because... The response that someone should have to that is to call the FBI when Russia of all countries are trying to, like, coordinate with you in any way, shape, or form. Now, you know, that one exchange, probably not, you know, prosecutable over. And I think the other thing is, too, since we have not seen the full report, is we need to remember that this is Robert Mueller talking about what he can legally prove in court beyond a reasonable doubt. And that does not mean that, like, we're not going to see some things that are fishy. And so on that on that front, too, I would, you know, throw some cold water. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I do and not back- get paid enough to defend Don Jr.'s judgment calls. So back to the Young Dems. Um, I think what we're seeing a lot with the Young Dems is a focus on local. Yeah. Um, it, it, young Dems are getting in, getting their hands dirty, and seeing what they can do locally to then have it move up the chain nationally and to start a wave where they can be most effective. And I think that that is a very effective use of time. And so that's part of why I think we don't hear a whole lot about talking about impeachment. Um, And another word on impeachment, personally speaking, 
Um, I think that if Trump ever wanted to pick a good insurance policy against impeachment, he picked well with Pence. Um, being a member of the LGBT community and seeing how effective Pence has been historically, um, like hell, I want Pence in the White House instead of Trump. Like yeah, I, hell. I see this too among discussion among Democrats that uh, Pence rising to the presidency would not be an improvement. Um, no, not at all. And I've had this discussion, be, like you said, you've had this discussion with people. I've had discussions with people about this as recently as last week with my chiropractor. You know, like we were just talking about it. And I was like, you know, I, I'm a little bit afraid of what is going to come out in this report because honestly, I don't know that impeachment will help us at all. I really wish we could just get away from impeachment being on the table for every American president. Because I feel like, as I said earlier, since Nixon, I feel like just every president has faced unreasonable threats of impeachment uh, because high crimes and misdemeanors, you know, the founders could have done us a solid by, like, defining either of those terms. Uh, But, like, I don't really think any president between Nixon and Trump got real close to that because Bill Clinton, while, you know, did did things you should not have done, uh, were mostly in a personal capacity and not really in his, uh, you know, capacity as president. And that's really what impeachment is for. Uh, and you know, like George W. Bush and Obama, I think both faced like real pretty unfair, uh, calls for that. So I, I, I think it would, it would do us a, a big favor by, by doing it, uh, you know, doing away with that constant, uh, threat and I, I think on trump too a lot of bad things could still come out about trump's business dealings about how he handled his foundation but honestly i think i think voters knew that to be honest i think if you asked many donald trump voters is donald trump a crook they would be like yes but he's a crook for me so i like him and so i think that was really baked into a lot of people's votes uh and so i think really unfortunately the the best remedy uh, for that is election in 2020, uh, because I don't think uh, Donald Trump, you know, I don't think people are surprised by that. Uh, I would just like to say I would like to, to to put a retweet out there on let's move on from everybody. Every president has done something impeachable. I don't think President Bush did. I don't think President Obama did. Clinton, well, Clinton, of course, it wasn't about what he did. It was about that he lied about it under oath. But is a general rule. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. These presidents have not done impeachable offenses. Let's move on from those threats. Well, then on that note, we are going to wrap it uh, for the week. Uh, if you loved our disorganized episode, leave us a comment on our iTunes page. If you did not, please do not leave us a comment on our iTunes page. Uh, but for that, we are going to leave that there. We will be back with our annual The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly episode next week, where we review all of the final stuff from session. Because uh, it will be over. It will be over. Woo, this woo. is the last mid-session podcast, and we will greet you from the other side. Uh, but for that, for Ben, Megan, and Luke, I'm Kyle, and this was a fun show. It was very disorganized, but it was fun. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Okay, thanks. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.